Well, I'm excited to be back uh, in the pulpit after a few week break and jump back into Mark chapter 1. So please go ahead and take your Bible and find Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I would just like to highlight one brief announcement that next Sunday is our church picnic at Camp Gilead. So I want to just reiterate that and invite you to come. There is a sign-up sheet out in the foyer um, for you to uh, sign up to bring a side dish, and we'll take care of the rest. So I hope to see you guys there next weekend, um, Sunday, at Camp Gilead for our picnic after church. It'll be directly after church. So, with that said, let's turn our attention to the preaching of the Word of God. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. The message today is entitled, Becoming a Disciple of Christ. Becoming a Disciple of Christ. I want you to imagine for a second that you go to your mailbox and you find in your mailbox an invitation from the local town representative. And here's what it says. Dear neighbor, join us this weekend for a community barbecue and celebrate the beginning of the summer. You think to yourself, that sounds fun, but... I looked at the forecast, and it's going to be really hot. So I don't think I'm going to go to this one. The next day, you open up your mailbox, and you find an envelope from your boss. You open it up, and inside is an invitation that says, Save the date. Fourth of July celebration. Bring the family. Enjoy some patriotic festivities. And come get to know your coworkers more. Now you think, wonderful. Some good old-fashioned mandatory fun. And you don't really want to go, but you don't want to be viewed as the weird antisocial person. So you mark your calendar, and you play the game, right? You become a team player. And the next day, you get your third invitation. You're very popular. And to your utter astonishment, you find a very familiar address on the top left-hand corner. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. And if you don't know that address, that's the White House. And with childlike excitement, 
you open it up and you read it and you're thinking, can this really be from the president? Sure enough, the letter states, congratulations, you have been anonymously selected to travel to D.C., all expenses paid, to be given a personal tour of the White House and meet the president one-on-one. Your plane ticket leaves first thing in the morning, so start packing. Now, despite what your opinion is about our president, I have very little doubt that you would do everything within your power to make sure you were on that plane. Because it would be such an honor and a privilege to be given a personal tour of one of the most historic buildings in the world. No matter who sits in the Oval Office, right? In other words, I'd venture to say that very few, if any, would deny that presidential proposition. Why? Well, because as I said, it's a historic place that was, and the invitation that you've received was given to you by a person of influence, power, and authority. And so, do you see by now, in this introduction, how the obligatory nature of each invitation escalates, depending upon the level of authority the sender has? So, track with me. When your neighbor petitions you, you can deny that with no consequences, right? Who cares what your neighbor thinks about you? You don't have to go to the party. When your boss petitions you, well, a little bit of wisdom begs that you comply with what your boss asks you to do. But if the highest-ranking government official petitions you, you would be a fool not to comply. So, How about when the Lord Jesus gives you a petition, an entreaty? What would be the consequences of denying that? It would be catastrophic. This morning, Christ is sending you, each and every single one of you, a divine petition this morning, an obligatory invitation, an authoritative proposal, or... To be more accurate and precise, a binding command to be obeyed at once. At this time, our Lord Jesus is commanding you to follow him. That means all professing believers are summoned to a lifelong discipleship process. That's the main point today. At this very moment, you need to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ, or else you will be a disciple of someone else. You're either a disciple of Christ or someone else. It's all or nothing. And if you are a disciple of anyone other than Christ, then you are walking down the wrong path, which ultimately leads to destruction. Now, the way we're going to approach this text, verses 16 to 20, is a little unique. Normally, we work our way through a paragraph at a time, phrase by phrase. But the way this account is structured allows us to interweave verses 16 and 19, verses 17 and 20, and verses 18 and 20. 
Each of those three units are clearly viewed as three phases of becoming a disciple of Christ. First, becoming a disciple of Christ involves meeting Jesus. Secondly, hearing Jesus. And thirdly, responding to Jesus. Let's look at this first phase, meeting Jesus. Verse 16 again, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Right off the bat, we are told exactly where Jesus began to recruit for his ministry team. And the type of men Jesus sought after. He did not go to the synagogues and the temple to recruit the educated religious Jewish elites. He did not look to the polished, refined, noble, rich, experienced crowd of men to form his inner circle. Think about that. Where did he go? He went to the dirty. He went to the low. He went to the smelly. He went to the blue-collar, hard-working, uneducated, common, ordinary men. A bunch of nobodies. Now, I don't know about you, but this is encouraging to me. Because I was a nobody. I grew up in a broken home. I was raised by an, un, by an unimportant, blue-collar, calloused-hand truck driver. I was an unpopular fat kid. I was ignorant. I was lost. I was steeped into a dead religion of ritualism. But God called me. And he called me to preach. Despite who I was. That's the style of Jesus. So in a small way, I can relate to Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Perhaps some of you can too. It's important to note that this is not the first time that Jesus had a divine appointment with these men. Jesus already knew these, these men. According to John 1, 35-42, Andrew was with John the Baptist when John pointed to Jesus. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God. Andrew was there. Later, Andrew went and found his brother Simon Peter, who also came out to see Jesus. So several months had elapsed between then and now. Jesus pursued these brothers to call them to do one thing. To abandon their earthly business and follow him to share in the eternal work of building God's kingdom. Mark reveals what their business was. Verse 16 says that, Simon and Andrew were casting a net, for they were fishermen. 
And verse 19 says, James and John were also in the boat mending the nets. Now, when you read this, don't think of recreational fishing. Like when you grab a lawn chair and a pole and a tackle box and sit along the bank or hop in a a small boat and drop a line in the water for a few hours, enjoying a beverage, hoping to catch one or two fish. Or if you're in Alaska... 15 fish. In this time, in the time of Jesus, fishing was a big business. It was the industry of the time. In fact, commentators say that that fish was the predominant meat in the Mediterranean world. And for these men, these common folks, fishing was their livelihood. They spent long days out on the 13-mile-long seven-mile-wide lake, working very hard to catch as many fish as they could to make a living. Keep in mind that these men did not have any heavy-duty machinery that commercial fishermen have today. It was all done manually by throwing and lifting nets. Can you imagine the physical toil that would take on your body? As a side note, verse 20 mentions that John had hired servants, which suggests that their fishing operation was a successful, prominent one. And that small detail tells us how much treasure, this is important, that small detail reveals to us how much treasure they were being commanded to leave behind. These men were not leaving behind a struggling career. These men did not say, well, I don't have anything better to do. I, just go, I guess I'll go follow Jesus. They weren't leaving a failed business venture. They were turning their backs on a family enterprise that afforded them comfort and security. Why on earth would somebody give all that up to serve a carpenter's son from Nazareth who had no wealth, no fame, no reputation, no prestige, and no provision. Why? Because this man, Jesus, was no mere man. They knew he was the Lord, the Messiah. And in order to become his disciple, they were going to have to listen to what he said. And that leads us to the second phase in the process of becoming a disciple of Christ. First, you have to meet Jesus. Second, you have to hear Jesus. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, pause right there. Jesus said to them. Notice it was Jesus who took the initiative. It was Jesus who found them. It was Jesus who took the first step. They did not volunteer. Notice that God sought them out and chose them. Listen. I know for some of you this is hard to accept. But God is in the business of choosing. He is in the business of electing. 
It's been said that God always chooses his servants. And that's absolutely true. Here's the silver bullet for you. John 15, 16 says, and this is Jesus speaking, listen to this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. It cannot get any clearer than that, can it? You did not choose me, but I chose you. How did God's election of his servants come to fruition? How? Do they just become zapped? Do they just get some type of subjective outer body experience that reveals this to somebody? No. It's through the means of human language. Jesus said to them, follow me. And in verse 20, it says he called them. Now, those simple words in English are the most repeated words of Christ in the New Testament. Thirteen times Jesus spoke this. This was the most used phrase that we hear from our Lord's lips. Follow me. Literally, in the Greek, it's come after me. Three words. This is not an invitation. It's a command. It's an authoritative call. It's a summons. So guess what? There's no, no need to pray about it. You know, that, that's a Christian cliche phrase that we need to stop using. Listen, there's times where you do need to pray about something. There are some gray areas. There are some things that Scripture does not reveal to us. And then we, so we need to mine the principles out of the Scripture and allow them and the Holy Spirit to guide our actions. But guess what? That's rare. There is so much that the Scripture explicitly says. And people go around using that cliche term, I've got to pray about it as an excuse to not do the hard work and study the Bible. I don't know where to go to church. I've got to pray about that. No. You find a church that believes in the inerrancy of Scripture and teaches it. There's your church. Oh, I, I don't know who to marry i got to pray about it. No, you don't. Find a man or woman that loves Christ more than you. That's it. It's simple. I could go on and on about that, but I won't. There's no need to pray about this idea of following Christ. We don't need to seek counsel. You know, sometimes we see uh, we're faced with, 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 a, with a decision or we're faced with something that we've got to do and we, we want to delay our decision because we want to go seek counsel. Sometimes that's, that's necessary. But don't use that 
as an excuse to keep from doing the right thing. When you know what's the right thing. When Scripture explicitly says it. There's no need to ask clarifying questions or offer an opposing opinion on the matter when it comes to following Jesus in an age where we're constantly encouraged to offer our own perspective. That could be a stumbling block. Well, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Are you sure that's not just your interpretation? That has been one of the most devastating blows to the church. So only excuse-making, only excuse-making would prevent someone from obeying this call to follow after Jesus. Upon hearing this command, this, this, this petition to follow Jesus, they were left with a situation that required what? Not prayer. Not counsel, not argumentation, either disobedience or obedience. And most of the decisions that you will face in your life, it's a matter of obedience or disobedience. This call was for them to leave their business and enter into full-time service to the king. They were called to leave their family and friends, to leave their, their livelihood behind and embrace, guess what? Here's what you embrace when you follow Jesus. Ready? You embrace a life of learning. If you think you already have learned what there is to learn, you know nothing. It involves suffering with or because of Christ. And thirdly, it involves preaching what Christ has told us to preach. It's ultimately a call to wholly invest one's life into the kingdom of God. Now again, I must be clear and forthright. Jesus in no way intends these words, follow me, to be a suggestion or an encouragement or an option. It's, slow, it's solely intended to be taken as a divine directive to be obeyed at once. As we'll see in verses 18 and 20, that's exactly what Simon, Andrew, James, and John did. They obeyed straight away without delay. But before we look at their response to Christ's call, let's draw our attention back to verse 17 and consider what following Jesus specifically entailed. Again, we don't have to guess. We follow Jesus, and then he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, that's a good translation. If you have an NIV, stop and look at me. <laughs> the NIV misses the mark. It says, I will send you out to fish for people. Wrong. Nowhere in the Greek do you see... The Greek word for send. Literally it says, I will make you become. Now just pick that apart. Analyze those words. The implication is this. If you follow Jesus, he will actively transform you from existing as an earthly, 
useless worker to a heavenly, fruitful worker. He does it. In other words, when a man or a woman becomes a disciple, you can't be sent but you've been changed. Does that make sense? The fisher of men labors tirelessly to draw people into the net of Christ's salvation so that men might be saved from the wrath to come. Now listen. If you're a true disciple of Christ, not only has he radically changed your heart at the moment of conversion, but he has also changed radically your life's primary ambition. And this is where even we conservative Baptists really mess up. We have our doctrine of salvation pretty nailed down. But sometimes our ambitions don't change. When you become a disciple, you are not primarily a teacher. You are not primarily an IT person. You are not primarily a construction worker. You are not primarily anything else. You are primarily a fisher of men. And if you have been converted to Christ, he has made you an evangelist. If you're a Christian, he has called you to be an evangelist until you have arrived at the appointed date of your death. To profess to be a follower of of Christ means that you follow him and have been given a new primary mission in life to proclaim the good news to the world. It is a lifelong ministry. Not temporary. You don't pay your dues. You don't put in your time and check out. It is a lifelong call. So if by divine appointment you have heard the authoritative word of Christ to follow him and become a fisher of men, if you have met Jesus and heard that, have you responded? Have you responded? Well, when should you respond? When should you respond to the words of Christ? To follow him and to be made a fisher of men. Well, that's the third phase. First, you meet Jesus, you hear Jesus, and thirdly, you respond to Jesus. Verses 18 and 20. Look at verse 18. It says, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20. Immediately, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Notice that repeated word. What is it? Immediately. Immediately. Interestingly, the Greek word there literally means straight. So it could be understood as straight away they follow Jesus. Their response was not a slow, prolonged detour. Remember, they didn't stop and pray about it. They, they didn't stop to think. They didn't linger in their thoughts. They didn't say, 
Jesus, give me some more time to decide. I really need to think through this one. Maybe I want to, maybe I want to follow you later in life and keep doing my own business here because it's going pretty well. They didn't say that, did they? Why? First of all, it's because they already knew Jesus. Remember, this call to follow is to people who know who Jesus is. They knew Jesus. They knew he was the master. And that means his chosen people obey straight away. And so if you're saved today, this is how you responded to the call to become a disciple of Christ. Now, I want to go a little deeper into the meaning and application of this doctrine of becoming a disciple of Christ. We could go a little deeper here. I think we could go a lot deeper. But just for the sake of time, let me, let me shepherd you a little bit more by sharing with you three ways that you should respond to this command to follow Jesus. Three ways that you should respond to the call or command to follow Jesus as a disciple. First, follow Jesus personally. Personally. Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say follow a clique, a group, a religion, a system, a religious organization, a historical institution, a creed, a cause, or a story. The gospel is much more than a story. But I hear people all the time downgrade the gospel of God to a story. But it's not. The call to be a disciple is a personal call. You need no human mediator. You need no altar. You need no penance to have access to Christ for forgiveness or fellowship. Your identity must not be placed in a denomination, a doctrinal statement, a historical figure, or a movement. Following the Lord does not boil down to any of those things at all. Because our great God and Savior is a personal God. And unlike all other false gods, he's knowable. That's not mean when we say he's personal. He's knowable. He's accessible through the word. Which is how he speaks to you. And through prayer, you speak to him. Jesus does not commune. He does not relate to you. He does not fellowship with you through a sacrament. Through a charismatic experience. Through a statement of faith. Through a ritual. Or any extra biblical revelation. The person of Christ is revealed to you personally through scripture alone. So if you want to follow Christ personally, you have to to take in the words of Christ revealed in the Scripture. Take the words of Christ found only in this book. That's where you'll find him. 
Now, it must be stated here, again, to be clear, this must be stated that following Christ presupposes a personal saving relationship with Christ. That is to say, you actually know Christ as your Savior. This means that you have genuine saving faith, that you have placed your trust in Christ alone. In other words, you have trusted in the person of Christ and in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And you know what else? Faith isn't enough, right? What did Jesus say in Mark 14 and 15? Repent and believe. So this means that knowing Christ, you have repented as well. You have experienced a change from your old way of thinking. Only those who have given who are given spiritual life by way of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit can personally follow Christ. So, what are you following? Is it possible that you're following a tradition? Is it possible you're following a man-made God? Is it possible that you are following someone who follows Christ? Are you following the name of Christ and not the person of Christ? In other words, do you just identify as a Christian, but don't personally follow Jesus? And you will know who you follow by the fruit you see in your life. If you're cold or lukewarm about evangelism, if you're cold or lukewarm about evangelism, you do not follow Christ. If you could care less about exercising your gift in the church, you follow a different Christ. Stop kidding yourself. Husbands, if you're not actively loving and honoring your wife, you follow a false Christ. Wives, if you are not willingly respecting and submitting to your husband, you have found a different Christ. Children, children, if you do not listen and obey your parents, you don't follow Christ. A true follower of Christ, true disciple, obeys Christ. Now, let me say something a little bit more bold. These things I just listed, if you started to think about someone else and yourself, then you're wrong. Think about how you, think about what indicators in your life, personally, might give evidence that you do not follow Christ. In one area or several. The second way that you can apply the call to be a disciple of Christ is to follow him closely. First, follow him personally and follow closely. Again, remember, the, the Greek word is come after me. That means you are trailing right behind him. The men that Jesus summoned were to travel with him, and they were to spend intimate time with him. You know, that clearly implies that they were close. 
They were to sit at his feet. They were to eat meals with him. They were to learn life-changing truths from him, which involved, guess what? Learning from Jesus involves being encouraged. It, it, it involves being helped. It involves experiencing unspeakable joy and hope. But if you stop there, what you have is a false Jesus. Because what else did Jesus do? Oh boy, did he rebuke. Did he rebuke? Yes or no? And sometimes they were harsh. I think of the time where Jesus was teaching and these cranky old apostles tried to get the children away from Christ. But Jesus said, stop. If you're going to cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the ocean. That's harsh. Think about the time where Jesus was sitting with Peter after his resurrection. And even after all Peter had experienced and, and seen, he was still trying to prevent Jesus from doing his will. And what did he say? Come on, man. You know that's not right. No. He said, get behind me, Satan. Man. That's the Jesus we can't ignore. Jesus, like, let me rephrase that. Like the apostles, we needed to be helped and encouraged. And rebuked and corrected, so do we. So do we. So part of being a disciple of Jesus is hearing Jesus say, I want you at my side. Follow me closely. Spend time at my feet. Hear all of my words, not just the ones you like. Hear all the words and apply them to your own heart. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Follow him personally, closely, and lastly, follow him unconditionally. Unconditionally. We know what that word means, but we don't like it. Except when it applies to us, right? We love to be recipients of unconditional love. We love to be recipients of unconditional forgiveness. We love to be recipients of unconditional patience. But boy, we don't like to give it, do we? Jesus said, follow me. And what else did he say? Nothing. Follow me, period. He gave them no vision. He gave them no five-year plan. He gave them no place to stay. He didn't offer them a salary. He didn't give them a short-term commitment. You know, we love that, right? Short-term commitments. I'll give you six months of my time, then I'm going to back out, right? He did not do that. He made no promise that it would end well. He made no promise that it would be fun. He made no promise it would be easy or comfortable. He simply said, follow me. 
and he gave no conditions whatsoever. The only guarantee they did receive was that they would become evangelists. In essence, he was calling them to work. Now, don't get me wrong. Those who answer the call to follow Jesus have already been given the free gift of eternal life by grace through faith. But what does Christ promise to give his followers after conversion and before glory? I wonder if the apostle would have known this, that they would have still done it. <laughs> but we read later that becoming a disciple of Christ involves being hated. It involves persecution. It involves hardship. It involves sacrifice. And I'm afraid that the majority of Christians focus only on the cost of salvation because someone else paid it. But then totally ignore the cost of discipleship. They must go together. Jesus commanded repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. Then Jesus commands Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. And if you are not committed to being fishers of men, stop pretending. But if you're a Christian with saving faith, follow Jesus. And keep in mind that the cost may be great. The disciples left their job. They left their family. They left their friends. They left their money. And I'm not saying that's what you're going to have to do. But you might. The cost for you may be career, um, a, uh, a short career progression. It could be relationships. It could be family division, you know, Jesus said that I have come to bring a sword to divide mother from mother-in-law and so forth. So there, there is a cost. At the very least, if you're following Jesus, there will be a sacrifice. There will be. And so, to wrap this up today, what we discovered is the process of becoming a disciple of Christ. It begins with meeting Jesus. It begins, then, it, then, it, then it goes to hearing Jesus and then responding to Jesus. That's how these four men came to be in Christ's service. Now, the process is similar today except that all of Christ's chosen vessels, you're not, you're not going to meet him physically. He's not going to come to your house and knock on your door and say, follow me. He's not going to do that. But you do meet him in his word. You do meet Christ right here. You hear his call right here. And you're faced with disobedience or obedience. 
All disciples must follow him personally, closely, and unconditionally. So, let me ask one more time. Because I'd be a sorry preacher if I didn't. Are you truly following Jesus today? Ask yourself that question. Meditate on that for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. If there are ways, if there are categories, or if there are areas in your life where you know the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now, then repent. You've heard Jesus through this message today. And now you know what the Lord demands of you. You you know that you are responsible to respond in true faith and repentance. And then once you have those, Scripture is clear. Don't delay. Follow the example of Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And follow Jesus. Father thank, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us such a clear mandate, such clear direction. Father, all this talk from weak men about having visions in church, this should be our vision. I pray that the vision of this church will be simple. To follow you and be fishers of men, that's all we need. That's all we need to look at. That's all, that's all the vision we need to follow you and to become fishers of men. Wow. A hundred lifetimes would not be able to accomplish that mission. Forgive me for failing to be a fisher of men, Lord. Forgive the men and women here today who have failed in that area too. Father, I know there are men and women here who are not following you. I don't know the extent, but you do. I don't know who needs to believe and repent, but you do. So if there are any here today who have not really believed and repented, please, Lord, save them. And may they respond rightly in obedience and follow you. Leave behind their personal, selfish ambition. And become a fisher of men. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.